The nightmare is over. As the big, bold headline on the front page of today's New York Times states, democracy has prevailed. You could almost hear the collective sigh of relief. Sure, you may not have been as giddy as MSNBC's talking heads last night who were beaming with ear-to-ear smiles, thanking the newly inaugurated President Biden for bringing hope. But not only hope, Joy Reid thanked the Biden administration for bringing Fashion and stars as well. I wasn't certain what she meant by bringing fashion because I wasn't paying attention to the inauguration because who the hell pays attention to the inauguration? And I was completely confused by who she meant as stars because all I heard was that James Taylor and Cher were going to perform. And I can see those kinds of stars at any number of casinos in the Indiana, Michigan, Illinois area. You also probably weren't as upset as the commentators at Fox News, which was offended by President Biden's calls for unity and obsessed with allegedly far-left protesters vandalizing a Democratic Party office in Portland, Oregon, a vandalization that clearly upset Fox more than anything that happened at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th. Because if there's one thing Fox News hates, it's to see the property of the Democratic Party being harmed in any way. In the wake of what happened 15 days ago in the Capitol building, followed by the inauguration of Joe Biden as president, there have been many desperate attempts to understand what the media is referring to as the mob and the resilience of whatever democracy we have in the United States and its institutions to combat the rise of the far right, even fascism. As our guest today points out, although you may feel like our four-year-long national nightmare flirtation with fascism may be over, Fascism doesn't need a Hitler-type figurehead to continue its racialized violence. In other words, it's not that the nightmare is over, but that it continues, and we better confront it, or else. We'll discuss the state of affairs post-Trump and what the future of fascism in the United States still looks like today. When we speak in a few with writer Robert Kavoris, who wrote the article, We Need a Popular Anti-Fascist Movement to Fight Fascism. We need long-haul working-class organizations, concrete political alternatives, and most urgently, a popular anti-fascist movement in the streets. That article was posted at PartisanMag.com. Robert is a member of the Viewpoint Magazine Editorial Collective and recently served as Secretary of the DSA in Santa Cruz, California. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for your weekend? Uh, I just want to say, uh, got the funny mittens, funny coat, sitting funny in the chair. Still at the party, though. Always showing up to the party. I loved the that meme. And the reason I loved that meme is only because of two different instances that I saw of it. One was him in his folding chair. And by the way, those folding chairs look like they were 
but cold. One was him in his folding chair, but instead of him sitting in the folding chair, he was on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise in the captain's seat, which I found funny. And then there was another picture that nobody was sharing, and it was him going to the inauguration, and he was carrying all of these folders that looked like they were from the 1960s with little square rectangular white labels on them, and the caption was, uh, Bernie's going to the inauguration, but he's got a lot of other things to do today. So it just looked like he was a busy guy going to work. I find found them incredibly funny. I agree with your analysis, but yes, I found them incredibly funny. We're planning on doing something this weekend that scares the hell out of me. We're going shopping. After a few minutes, I freak out in any grocery store. And if I go to the really tight confines of the corner liquor store, even for a few seconds, I'm freaking out. It's like a combination of claustrophobia, which I do not suffer from, and paranoia, which I increasingly do suffer from during this pandemic. But we're shopping for new shoes tomorrow because I think my current shoes have completely worn through and probably not good for my back. And we're getting me a new home office chair because the century-old antique wooden chair is also likely contributing to my increasingly bad back. And I don't want to miss any more shows over back spasms. So that's what I'm doing this weekend. Hey, can I jump in for one thing? Sure. Uh, Just use my platform here for a second. If we have any Georgian listeners in, in the country, not the state, please get in touch with me about what I should do with a package of Camelli Sunelli powder. I received two obscure packages of spice mixture for my birthday, so I got to figure out what to do with them. Oh, awesome! So maybe people in uh, it hypocrite any, any Tbilisi listeners? Well, let me know. So. Uh, but get this: so we're going to a major department store. Actually, Alex, it's the one right by your house. We're going there because my girlie uh, dropped in a few weeks ago to return a package that was accidentally shipped to her. Something she never ordered. But when uh, she went inside the store, she said it was fully stocked, like it was completely perfectly stocked but absolutely no customers at all nature is healing i know it's crazy she said like maybe 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 a handful of people in the entire multi-floor retail store and all i could think of is the shopping mall scene in the 1978 george romero classic dawn of the dead and now i am morbidly curious to witness the end of brick and mortar retail so i'm actually looking forward to shopping just to see What zombie landscape it looks like. More importantly, Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, hey, uh, so what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? Uh, The Culinary Institute of America. Very curious what they've been up to. With The the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer to this, this week's question from hell. By the end of today's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff admits to digestive relief. Again, the question from hell is, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. We got an email overnight from the Oracle. And when you get an email from the Oracle, you better read it on the air. The Oracle writes, no interview with Shoshana Zuboff, re the age of surveillance capitalism, the fight for a human future at the new frontier of power. I was sure I found out about that book via This Is Hell. Oracle, it is very possible you found out about Shoshana's book on our show, and it has come up many times with our guests, and we had a lot of listeners suggesting we have Shoshana on the show back in uh, early 2019 when her book originally came out, and then in early 2020 when uh, it was released in paperback. But sometimes... These requests just do not work out, and that does not mean the work is any less relevant. And as many of our guests have cited surveillance capitalism, 
it's probably a very worthy read. So yes, Oracle, sometimes you learn about a work from our show that was never actually featured on the show, so no matter how hard we tried. We mentioned on yesterday's show how we are also still looking for volunteers to join us here on This Is Hell. We're looking for both board operators and those who can do some digital remote work. Because of the pandemic and its recent record number of daily deaths in the U.S., in-person training for producers is a bit difficult. However, if you are interested, we'll put you on the list and we'll contact you when it's safe to meet in close quarters, like our producer's control room. If you are not from the Chicago area and you would still like to be part of the crew here on This Is Hell, like I said, we do have other remote work with which we could use your assistance. If you'd like to work with us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at com. And that's what Sarah did immediately following yesterday's show. Sarah writes, Hey Chuck, I recently graduated with a degree in digital media and have been living in New York for the past few months. I listen to This Is Hell pretty religiously and would love to... I wonder if that means she genuflects while listening. Pretty religiously and would love to know if you guys have any open positions or offer any internship possibilities be a serious privilege to keep learning from your team i've attached my resume below just in case you want to check it out best sarah sarah alex will be contacting you and everybody who has volunteered to work on this is hell over the last few months in the very near future we truly appreciate all of you who have contacted us about being even more involved in the show coming up what a Biden pres- presidency means for the anti-fascist movement. What a Biden presidency means for the anti-fascism movement. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff admits to digestive relief. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. And you can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show. Also coming up, we'll be telling you what's happening on Patreon. Patreon tomorrow at 10 a.m. at patreon.com slash this is hell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Yesterday, all of the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, Fox, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, freaking C-SPAN, every one of them carried the Inauguration of Joe Biden live with wall-to-wall coverage of the pomp and circumstance of electing a new president. They all, even Fox and Fox News, seem to revel in patriotic coverage of the traditional peaceful transfer of power. The United States and its system of governance has proven resilient yet again, proving that it can withstand any threat from those who say would rather have, I don't know, fascism. Here to help us have a better understanding of what happened yesterday, what happened a couple of weeks ago, and our inevitable, still inevitable future that will be threatened by fascism. Joining us is writer Robert Kavoris, who wrote the article, We Need a Popular Anti-Fascist Movement. That article was posted at PartisanMag.com. Robert is a member of the Viewpoint Magazine Editorial Collective. Welcome to This Is Hell, Robert. Hi, thanks very much for having me on here. So the New York Times front page headline today is Democracy Has Prevailed. Yesterday it was reported by a higher up administration official within the Joe Biden administration that he would be following up on a campaign promise he made, and that is to recognize 
Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela instead of the democratically elected Nicolas Maduro. What does it tell you about democracy prevailing when Joe Biden, the newly elected president, is going to be <laughs> allowing a non-democratically elected president, recognizing a non-democratically elected president to be the president of another nation? Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a, a bitter irony after, you know, since the election, at least, and even before in the U.S., um, all of the discussion from the political establishment, from the democratic establishment about the possibility of a coup, about Trump, you know, not just in that election, but for the last four years, undermining the U.S.'s democratic institutions uh, to turn around on the first day of the presidency and say uh, that they're recognizing a political figure in Venezuela who was never run in or not even run in, let alone won a democratic election for president. Uh, it, I think it does tell you quite a bit about, I think, the, the shallow nature of some of this discussion over the last several years, for, for sure, about democracy. You write, following the recent far-right riot at the U.S. Capitol, it's tempting to seek refuge. The sight of marauders with guns, zip ties, Confederate flags, and Holocaust fan gear was ominous. And the more we learn about the possible involvement of police, both on and off-duty, the worse things appear. Other right-wingers inspired by those at the Capitol are already organizing more actions of the same sort. Last Sunday, actions were scheduled to take place at every state capital, and those crowds only 10 days after the U.S. Capitol building occupation were reportedly very small, with only dozens arriving when hundreds, if not thousands, had been reportedly expected. Yesterday, again, huge crowds were expected not only at the U.S. Capitol, but at every state capital, and again, they failed to materialize. Many at the U.S. Capitol protests on January 6th claimed that those protests, even entering the Capitol building, all that was a success. To you, what explains why the protests yesterday were not as big as the protesters claimed they were going to be, or as big as state and federal governments and law enforcement officials believe they could be? What, what do you think was the impact of the Capitol protest, a protest that participants saw as a success on the inauguration protests yesterday? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, it, it is a longer-term question of what will have been the impact of the January events, um, because I do think that people who pay close attention to the right, who uh, track the activity and discussion of the right online in particular, um, I mean, it, there, there was definitely attempts to plan some of these actions that you mentioned, but I think uh, the immediate short-term impact also did involve a significant amount of disarray um, in terms of people's reactions, specifically to Trump, who, you know, the day after January 6th, Basically, you know, when he encouraged the protests and then told them that they were all very special people, the next day said, oh, I, I wholeheartedly disavow this and I, I don't support anything like this. Um, so certainly there's an, a fair bit of short-term disarray, as well as, you know, disappointment among followers of QAnon that some of those predictions by uh, Q didn't come to pass yesterday. Um, but I still think what we need to be careful of in the long term is the fact that people might be inspired by these events. Uh, you know, it's only been a couple of weeks. And as we know, the, the sort of timeline of far right acts of violence in the U S is much longer than, uh, you know, just the past few weeks and much longer than even the past four years, but certainly it's been ramped up over that time. 
And, you know, some observers, for instance, of the aftermath among the far right after Charlottesville uh, in 2017 and Unite the Right protest there, you know, they saw a fair amount of conflict emerge among those different factions of the right and viewed January 6th as a kind of regroupment. Uh, and it may be that it's a, just the beginning of a longer regroupment. It may be that there's still a lot of ideological and factional sorting out to do among people on the far right. But I think the, uh, the spectacle, uh, the appeal, I think that those images still have had for many people of, you know, just transgressing the sort of sanctity of Congress, you know, that's still out there. And I still think that there's a possible set of long-term uh, consequences to that that might well involve new kinds or new instances of far-right violence from kind of so-called lone wolf attacks, shootings, bombings, to other kinds of organized violence. You clearly follow the far right a lot more than I do, but I still realize that there is, as you were just saying, this isn't anything new. This has something that's been going on for a long time. When we look at, say, protests in Portland, Oregon, and people think that they are something that just started this year, it erases a history. I think it dates back to at least 2014 of the far right, uh, you know, fighting with the far left or just leftist protesters within uh, Portland, Oregon. So what do we miss in our understanding of, say, yesterday's uh, alleged far left burning of a Democratic National Committee office in Portland, Oregon, when we only seen this as a single event that happened yesterday instead of looking at this six-year longer history that they have when it comes to antagonisms between the far right and the left in Portland? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you point out, it's worth looking at these kind of uh, local histories. Uh, and, you know, some people, for instance, reporters who've been in Portland over the last several years, as well as um, Unicorn Riot, who uh, has, you know, followed different kinds of protests and conflicts between the left and right in uh, Minneapolis. You know, these reporters were pretty quick to identify specific people at the Capitol on January 6th who had been participating in some of these local confrontations. So there's definitely a sense in which um, those local confrontations did lay the ground uh, for what happened at the Capitol. Um, I think the other thing, just in terms of the more recent history to keep in mind, is that like with Charlottesville and some other conflicts around that time in Portland, as well as in Berkeley, California, um, and other places, there was actually a mass anti-fascist mobilization against the right. And part of the reason that, you know, at least temporarily, some of these groups and some of their more visible leaders, people like Richard Spencer, uh, and in a slightly different vein, Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, they've, these people are no longer leading the right is because there was an anti-fascist movement against it. Um, so that's definitely worth keeping in mind from the last four years and something that I think is a lesson moving forward. But I think to your question about longer term, you know, we, we also have to reckon with the sort of history of politics in the United States and the very specific kinds of um, both far-right politics, broadly speaking, but especially racial politics in the United States. And I think when we see events you know, recent events and also events that will likely come, um, we need to think about how those events are articulating in a way uh, a deeply rooted part of American political culture, um, which is whiteness, um, which is racial domination, 
in addition to, you know, rampant sort of uh, a really rampant drive toward individualism um, and, and other features of the American political landscape. So I think sometimes we're, we're misled by the kind of short attention span that we might have when we look at these things if we don't see them in that really long political context as well. And you're right that the forces of reaction may have undergone a decomposition after the events of Charlottesville in 2017, but the Capitol riot was, among other things, a reconvergence of the far right's different factions, Proud Boys, QAnon followers, neo-Confederates, Nazis, off-duty cops, COVID deniers, media personalities, not to mention a handful of lawmakers from around the United States. So did Charlottesville then, did that tear apart the far right, uh, as you were saying, uh, much to the efforts of Antifa, and then the Capitol building protests brought them all back together again? Was the Capitol building protest not only a display of right-wing power, but also a sign of its resurgence? I think at, at at the least, it was a sign that there was a room for a kind of reconnection, um, including I would add new, you know, I mentioned in that list, new factions that actually didn't really exist in 2017 or didn't have the prominence if they did exist like QAnon, um, as well as, you know, channeling energies from the kind of anti-COVID lockdown protests that took place in state houses all over the country the last year, um, in which were linked uh, quite notably to uh, a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. So, I mean, there's new forces feeding into it, which I think is notable. Um, And again, in the long term, exactly what comes out of it remains to be seen. But uh, close observers, you know, and I'm talking not just not really even about myself, but people who have gone undercover with far right groups who really are well uh, tuned in to the kind of conversations happening on far right message boards. You know, they've pointed out that a lot of these groups like QAnon, Um, and the militia movements and things like that, they actually didn't have any in-person connections, at least since Charlottesville, until now. Um, So I do think there is something new there and that it's actually channeling new forces, though again, with an outcome that we'll all have to pay attention to. And listeners should check out our interview from September with former FBI agent who went undercover amongst the far right, Michael German. Uh, We played it back in September of 2020, and you can get a really good sense of exactly how much infiltration has happened with white supremacists going into law enforcement. Uh, Robert, many believe that the worst is now over because some who are online claiming to be QAnon believers are posting that they now realize that they were lied to. And at least according to the Washington Post story that came out yesterday, it seems like a lot of them feel like they were conned, feel like they were duped, although there's still some who are trying to hold on to the QAnon conspiracy theory. So is the worst over because we see some posts from allegedly alleged QAnon believers that they are now denying their belief in the theory? Well, here's the interesting thing when when I hear that. You know, we're talking about people that are certainly going to feel if this is the conclusion they've come to after following Q posts for the last few years, they're going to feel disillusioned. They're going to feel disappointed and even lied to. But I think if we look at the deeper roots of the far right, of far right politics in the United States, we can see that these are the same kinds of things that actually lead people into far right politics. Right. I mean, searching out or getting sort of drawn into a conspiracy theory about the deep state comes already from a great mistrust 
of political institutions. And, you know, a mistrust that I, I think can be quite reasonable, actually, um, of political institutions as they exist and of establishment political discourse. Uh, so the idea that now this particular kind of foothold has fallen out for these people will necessarily lead to a, a demobilization of the right. Um, I don't see that. I see actually fundamentally a lot of the political contradictions and a lot of the um, sort of relationships people have to political institutions and, and to state power in the United States. These are fundamentally still there. The things that led to the appeal of Donald Trump are fundamentally still there. Uh, and I don't see that anyone in the political establishment, least of all, perhaps the Democratic Party, is posing anything new to address those things. Um, so to me, this is why I say we still do need a popular anti-fascist movement, a popular movement against all kinds of strains on the far right uh, that will continue to have appeal in the future. Well, let's talk about who people are looking to to save us from the threat of fascism. You write of the U.S. Capitol riots, the response of the state and influential actors or sectors of the capitalist class has been swift. Tech companies booted Trump from almost every imaginable social media platform. A broad array of corporate donors are now pursuing a donation boycott of legislators who voted against certifying the electoral results. There are those in the private sector and their supporters who believe that Donald Trump's presidency proved that more than ever, especially during the last few weeks, we need the private sector to help defend whatever democracy there is in the United States, that they too have to have a level of social responsibility, even loyalty to the country, and what could be called America's democratic traditions. Can corporations protect us from authoritarianism? Can they save democracy? And what happens to democracy when it does, to some degree, depend upon the private sector for its survival? It's uh, it's a, definitely a bit rich to hear, you know, we're talking about two weeks before the end of Donald Trump's presidency, um, the events of January 6th. And then after four years of uh, having Donald Trump essentially as a huge draw on a platform like Twitter to then ban him um, and to think that this is a mark of responsibility on the part of the Twitter corporation, I think... Uh, it's completely misguided, um, you know, like the kind of Republican politicians who <laughs> resigned in the last week of his term. I think we can see straight through that to the kind of hypocrisy involved there and the attempt to save face that came only after a particularly spectacular event um, that was distasteful to them. Uh, so, no, I don't think we can depend on these uh, corporate donors or social media platforms or tech companies to kind of do this work for us. And again, it's the same thing with political donors. You know, you could trace donations to so many of the Republican congressional members who actually voted, even after the riots on January 6th, voted not to certify the election results. Um, and you can see them as part of a much broader rightward push uh, that has involved major kind of funding networks from big companies, uh, most famously, you know, the Koch brothers um, and their kind of right-wing funding networks. Um, but just, again, I think it's easy to take these events in isolation, but if you look at them as part of this broader corporate effort to actually empower right-wing politics for their own ends, um, 
then I don't I think it's clear that we cannot trust them to do so. And to the question of what that means about our democracy, I mean, I think it says a lot about uh, how undemocratically uh, a society we live in when, in fact, that is the first thing that seems like maybe a kind of savior to people is, oh, well, the massive corporations that fund our elections are going to change the way they do that. Um, it seems that that avoids the central problem there, which is, of course, that they fund our elections in the first place. And you write that Congress, of course, impeached Trump for a second time for sedition with House Democrats joined by a small group of Republicans in addition. There is now a vast series of ongoing investigations by the FBI and Department of Homeland Security into the riots participants, with some speculation of charges looming for those speechmakers who encouraged the event, including Rudy Giuliani and President Trump himself. This is the ruling class's version of disavowing Trump and defending its own legitimacy, using its vast power and resources to suppress and react to a particularly visible manifestation of the rage of the right. So can those institutions of the state, can those save us from fascism? Can the FBI and Department of Homeland Security, can local law enforcement, state law enforcement, can they save us from fascism? I think the answer to that question depends on how you conceive of the problem when we talk about uh, fascism, neo-fascism, or various kinds of far-right politics. And I think if you know, we're talking about the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security kind of solving this problem for us, um, then we've already misidentified the problem, which is not, in my view, a problem of uh, criminality, uh, not even, in my view, a problem of something like sedition um, or, you know, being un-American, which is sort of some of the ideological discourse around this coming from both those, uh, those kinds of institutions as well as from the Democratic Party. But if we think of what we actually object to when we think about January 6th is the political content of the people who carried out that act, uh, a content which, you know, to the extent that we can say that there was one coherent message, um, certainly had to do with a non-democratic attempt to impose uh, and to defend uh, the domination represented by Donald Trump. You know, Robert Paxton the, the eminent scholar of the history of fascism, he talks about one of the motivating passions of that ideology being the right of the chosen group to dominate others without restraint. Um, and if we, that is what we object to, that kind of politics. And I think treating this as, you know, something to just be suppressed by the FBI or Department of Homeland Security, rather than a political problem to be resolved through political means, um, that's misguided. So the private sector can't save us. The state can't save it. Its institutions, law enforcement can't save us. You write, you ask of these uh, investigations by the FBI and Homeland Security into the Capitol building rioters, quote, but does this make us safer? And for the organized left, the socialist left, is it strategic to pile onto those efforts? In your opinion, is scrolling through videos and online images from the Capitol riots in order to identify participants and inform the public and potentially law enforcement of their activities to either shame them or get them to lose their job, their livelihood, or even be arrested. Is that an effective way to fight fascism? Thinking back to, for instance, this past summer where millions of people in the United States took to the streets to oppose uh, racist, violent police apparatuses across the country, and their insist, I mean, and the, the uh, proclivity of these institutions to 
murder people of color um, and to get away with it. Uh, you know, I think the lesson a lot of people took from that, including myself, was a lesson of abolition, which is that these institutions, law enforcement institutions, fundamentally need to be undone, uh, need to be torn down, and that they actually don't make us safer. Um, and, you know, Stuart Schrader, who studied the history of policing at a global level and the relationship of US, the U.S. to police forces all over the world, in a recent interview, he made a distinction between security and safety that I allude to in this article. Um, and his point is that, you know, we have a security state and security is a kind of whole ideology, which is that these institutions will save us from threats of violence or other kinds of threats. Um, but when we talk about safety, I think he says we need to talk about something more. We need to talk about new ways of conceiving, um, you know, how we can all work to make each other safer. And so to me, policing, like for so many other things, doesn't actually solve the problem of safety. Um, it doesn't actually, you know, when we think about policing uh, and all of the functions it serves on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, it, abolitionists argue, doesn't make us safer. It really doesn't address the root cause of any problems when it comes to safety. Um, it provides a, a, a veneer of security, which is violent on its face, but not safety. And so I think we could say the same thing about the far right. Uh, we're not safer when we think about, you know, empowering police or working with police, much worse to me, um, to actually crack down on members of this riot. I think we need to think more broadly about what it would mean to have a society where we were all safe instead of one where we empower specific, uh, you know, what Marx called arms, armed bodies of men to get security for us. And I think your ruling class analysis is fascinating. You write, as I was saying earlier, this is the ruling class's version of disavowing Trump and defending its own legitimacy, using its vast power and resources to suppress and react to a particularly visible manifestation of the rage of the right. But why suppress the far right? Isn't this what the conservative ruling class wanted all along? Well, you know, I think a lot of the conservative ruling class uh, as we've seen for the last four years under Donald Trump. Uh, you know, first of all, a lot of them actually, if you recall the primaries of 2016, a lot of them were not super happy with the idea of Donald Trump. They thought that the kinds of things he was saying at the time, you know, things uh, that were uh, racist, uh, sexist, um, <laughs> everyone remembers these things, so I won't repeat them, but, um, you know, they thought these were going to be distasteful and harmful to their broader cause of pursuing a kind of basic right-wing neoliberal politics, which is what they've been pursuing for the last 30 to 40 years. Um, when it turned out, in fact, that Donald Trump held a kind of appeal uh, to certain portions of the electorate that they maybe were not otherwise able to mobilize, they, you know, everyone from uh, Mitch McConnell to Lindsey Graham to uh, Ted Cruz, people that ran against Trump in the 2016 primary turned around and were happy enough to do his bidding. We're happy enough to have him in the party if they thought they could advance their agenda. Um, so what I think we're seeing now and what a lot of observers have pointed out is um, they, those same politicians, you know, they're looking for other ways to carry out their agenda that might not carry some of the things they didn't like about working with Trump, namely perhaps his uh, unpredictable and somewhat capricious behavior the kind of personalism that goes along with latching yourself to a figure like Trump and that we see 
is so prevalent among his supporters. Um, you know, these are people that now see a chance, people like McConnell see a chance to pursue the same agenda they've always wanted to pursue, but perhaps not under the throne of Trump so much personally. And so in a way, in a weird way, maybe the riot of January 6th gives them a chance to distance themselves from him, as well as to make room for others that might well in the future end up being just as effective electorally, um, you know, the kind of rising stars of the Republican Party, um, like Hawley um, and like others who, you know, might might well, you know, carry the Republican Party forward in 2024 into a new phase or and might even be more effective than Trump uh, and might not have the same kind of baggage that he had for those politicians. Yeah, it's just going to be I, I think it's just going to be Trump with a with a smiling face, a smile that people will actually like. You write, while it's clear that this election was in some sense a breach in the representative apparatuses of the state, led to understandable instability for some segments of the capitalist class, the official resistance led by the Democratic Party and a handful of Republican elites has at best served as a marginal obstacle to Trump's impulses and has insisted on treating him as an aberration rather than a system, uh, a symptom. So... Is the reason that that was a marginal obstacle, that the resistance was a marginal obstacle, was that because the resistance didn't take Trump seriously enough, that they thought he was just an aberration, that after four years in office or eight years he would just go away and we'd go back to the same? Did the resistance not take Trump seriously enough? I think in a way that's right. Um, you know, after 2016, many observers of the Democratic Party uh, might have thought that that party would have done a lot of soul searching, right? I mean, this this was a party that definitely didn't take Trump seriously as an electoral threat in 2016, thought that Hillary Clinton was going to kind of waltz into the presidency. Uh, and many people were quite shocked when Trump won. Uh, and so the question of, okay, well, what might the Democratic establishment want to do differently moving forward was posed. The answer I think they provided was not that much. Um, they, you know, the fact that Joe Biden is now the president, the fact that the, the person who was the vice president for the eight years preceding that electoral victory by Donald Trump, that this is the best solution they could trot out. And in fact, this is a solution that they fought to get after Bernie Sanders was, uh, you know, surging in the early primaries of the 2020 election. Um, I think it tells you a lot about what they think the issue is or what they perhaps don't think the issue is. And they don't think the issue is that there's something fundamentally wrong in our political culture uh, and in the relationship between uh, ostensibly democratic institutions to the U.S. populace at large. They think that, again, Trump is an aberration, that he is distasteful because of the way he acts, because he's not part of the uh, wasn't part of the political establishment per se. Um, but I, I, I don't think there's any evidence that, in fact, they recognize that, you know, something has to cause, something has to be, um, something has to be going on a little bit below the surface for you to get something so unexpected to happen, or at least unexpected for them in 2016, like the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that Joe Biden managed to win this election, I fear, will only confirm for so many of them the the idea that if you just go back to a pre-Trumpian normalcy, everything will be okay. When in fact, I don't think there's much evidence for that. I think the fundamental political problems are clearly still unaddressed as seen, uh, you know, by the fact that there was 
something like the January 6th riot. Should democracy have protections against someone like Trump from being elected? And would that still be democracy? Well, it's an interesting question because I think, you know, you hear the establishment now talking about the importance of democratic institutions um, and that they're, you know, this great line of defense against Trump, for instance, uh, seeking another term, even though, or somehow getting another term, even though he was not reelected. But as you pointed out in your first question about Venezuela, I think uh, a lot of these institutions, it would be a stretch to call them democratic. And this is partially what I fear now, where the Democratic Party uh, and the Republican, you know, the establishment side of the Republican Party as well, you know, with no less than Mitch McConnell immediately after the riot saying, our democracy survived uh, today, our democracy survived an assault on our institutions. Um, so there's going to be a doubling down of this rhetoric about democracy. And what I fear for those on the left who actually want to address the fundamental political issues here um, is that we actually want to be in a position where we can point out, and people have been pointing out, the undemocratic nature of so many American institutions. You talk about the Senate or the Electoral College or the fact that people's, you know, huge numbers of people's rights hinge on who is appointed to the Supreme Court for life. Um, there's so much non-democracy at the heart of our state that I, I worry about, you know, the, the sanctimoniousness about democracy that we hear now. Um, and I think that this is a, a, a real, going to be a real challenge to navigate for people who actually want to change our institutions for the better and to be more democratic. Well, let's get right to the heart of the matter. You quote social theorist, philosopher, and cultural critic Alberto Toscano writing the new U.S. fascism that radicals like George Jackson and Angela Davis strive to delineate is not an unwanted return from the other scene of colonial violence, but originates from liberal democracy itself. Indeed, it was a sense of the disavowed bonds between liberal and fascist forms of the state, which for Davis was one of the great lessons passed on by Herbert Marcuse, whose grasp of this nexus in 1930s Germany allowed him to discern the fascist tendencies in the United States of his exile. Fascism springs from liberal democracy. How does liberal democracy foster fascism? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the big questions, I think, um, you know, addressed by so many theorists, like the ones Toscano's talking about, in the history of capitalism in the 20th century uh, and now into the 21st, of course. Um, And I think one of the other people that Toscano talks about and the reason that colonial violence comes up in that quote you read is George Padmore, um, who talks about colonial fascism, you know, really early on in the 1930s. Um, So before World War II, before the kind of, say, more uh, typical or, you know, the, the forms of fascism that first come to mind, which typically are um, Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy. And Padmore says, you know, actually, the things that we're witnessing throughout Europe now uh, in the 1930s, we've already seen at the sort of far reaches of European empire in South Africa, in the West Indies, in other places. M.A. Césaire, another anti-colonial thinker of the period, um, pointed out that you know, the things that were being sort of brought back into the heart of Europe, um, once again, had actually been witnessed at the far reaches of empire and in the colonial policies of the very countries that were 
now feeling threatened by fascism, like the UK, like France, in addition to Italy and Germany. Um, and so on the one hand, there's, there's that component of it. On the other hand, I think, uh, and this is in the quote you read, what, what George Jackson and Angela Davis were arguing, according to Toscano, was that there has been racial violence um, at the heart of capitalism since the beginning, right? Because capitalism itself expanded its reach, gathered the resources to accumulate capital through colonialism. Um, and so when you look at a country like the U.S. established through a kind of colonial violence, uh, it, you can't really disaggregate the institutions that emerged there um, that have emerged in the United States from that history. And so the history is one of racial exclusion. The history is one of domination, of accumulation of lands and capital through expropriating um, native peoples, through chattel slavery, through the exploitation of workers of all races. Um, and so, you know, only in isolation could you look at the institutions and the state that emerged and say, oh, well, that's liberal democracy. Those are all democratic institutions, when in fact they were predicated on these forms of violence and exclusion from the very beginning. And so I think this is what we have to hone in on. Now, when we talk about fascism, this kind of exclusionary ideologies um, and institutions uh, might be more or less obvious. They might be uh, sometimes, you know, ideologies taken up even in conflict with the, the, the sort of establishment opinions of the state at different moments. So there's a sort of variability there about how these things manifest themselves. But fundamentally, they've been around. They've been around in capitalism. They've been around in liberal democracy. And when we analyze how they manifest themselves now, that's a history to keep in mind. Can't we solve the problem of fascism just by offering the people who are protesting, the people whose jobs, whose livelihoods might be threatened, can't we just solve all this problem with more jobs or maybe you know, ending the lockdown or maybe another check to help them out during the pandemic. Can we just help out the bottom line and that will solve the problem of fascism? I think this would be the argument of, you know, and maybe it's a simplification, but a lot of people who focus on when they talk about Trump, economic anxiety, and this is, you know, going back to 2016 as well, the idea that fundamentally, well, if people were economically satisfied, they wouldn't vote for someone like Donald Trump. Uh, but again, I think if you look at the history of right-wing politics in the U.S., um, this doesn't always bear out. Uh, and in fact, these elements of authoritarian politics, of a desire for domination, of uh, the privileges of whiteness um, as, at the core of different kinds of political tendencies, you know, th this, these have, I would say, a sort of um, autonomous character compared to or in relation to economic issues, which is not to say that they don't interact and that in moments of economic difficulty for people, they, it might not be more appealing to turn to a kind of right-wing ideology that promises you something, that promises you maybe status or uh, wealth or um, a position in a social hierarchy based on race or something else. Um, so there's definitely a, a kind of interaction there. But again, I think if we really want to strike at the heart of what makes right-wing politics appealing, um, as I argue in this article, we actually need to offer a different vision for a kind of society, not just immediate sort of economic relief, but the idea that like there, we, we can recognize that there are all kinds of problems in our society. We can recognize that people um, resent 
the political establishment and resent the powers that be, possibly for good reason, um, and then figure out, okay, well, what are we offering as an alternative from the left? What are we, uh, like in organizations like the one I'm a member of, the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, and who in my mind was part of the, a major part of the audience for this article, what are we going to do to say, we understand these issues, we face these issues, and we want to build an alternative together, rather than letting the alternative be a kind of reactionary, revanchist nationalism or racism. But you also write of the DSA, the possibility of a popular front involving the DSA and the Democratic Party does not exist because the DSA does not constitute enough of a political force to be in alliance with that party without tailing them. If we join the efforts of the Democrats as a bloc, we can only be cheerleaders for their efforts to expand policing, which, as in the case of our other social ills, can never vanquish the conditions that have allowed the far right to foster. So joining the DSA or seemingly having them join the Democratic Party will not work. Must the DSA work outside of the Democratic Party to have the influence that they actually want to have? I think to a large degree, yes. And I don't think in my mind that precludes, you know, the DSA has had um, candidates running in and winning in elections uh, on Democratic ballot lines. Um, in New York, where I live, uh, they've been very successful in the last couple of uh, election cycles at the state level of getting DSA members and uh, DSA endorsed candidates to win via the kind of election process that where, you know, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, if you win the Democratic primary, you're likely to win the general election. So I don't discount all of those things more generally. But when we talk about fighting the right, I mean, I think we got yesterday a strong taste of the kind of politics coming from the Democratic establishment. Uh, The overarching theme of Joe Biden's speech was about unity, right? It was about unifying the country, ostensibly after the disunifying figure of Donald Trump, with the events of January 6th, you know, not far from the back of many people's minds, um, unity was the watchword. And to me, if that's the watchword, then it becomes actually quite difficult for even the most well-intentioned members of the legislature like AOC or like Bernie Sanders or other members of the squad, what have you, uh, even if they want to pose things like Green New Deal or they want to oppose, or they want to pose Medicare for All legislatively, Actually, now they run the risk of being figures of disunity themselves, right? If they pose anything controversial and the way that the Joe Biden and the Democratic Party want to govern is essentially through unity, I think that becomes a big challenge for them. So when we talk about fighting the right, this is why I say the DSA and others on the left need a kind of autonomous, independent, anti-fascist politics that actually opposes the content of right-wing politics and not just uh, in the name of unity, wants to overcome it. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a potentially a different way of approaching it that doesn't actually endanger, you know, any other thing that we want to do uh, legislatively or otherwise. And that means building a sort of political base for the politics of the socialist left. We have been speaking with writer Robert Kavoris, who wrote the article, We Need a Popular Anti-Fascist Movement. 
which appeared at PartisanMag.com. Robert is a member of Viewpoint Magazine's editorial collective. One last question for you, Robert, and as we do with all of our guests, we promise. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write to link the long-term goal of a revolutionary alternative to either capitalist liberal democracy or fascism with the short-term goal of keeping the far right at bay. We need a popular anti-fascist movement. As the term implies, a popular movement must be first and foremost in motion, dynamic, driven, and even amorphous. All positive qualities when facing a foe that is likewise in flux. Is what is needed most the thing the right imagines already exists? Do we need an Antifa army to protect us from fascism? You know, I think the thing that we need most, uh, aside from the sort of spectacular images that prevail on the right of Antifa, is really, like I say, they're a mass movement. And what that looks like is not necessarily, uh, ideally, just street fighting or something like that, um, but actually, you know, making these politics appeal to the broadest possible layers of people so that it's not, you know, being an anti-fascist is not some um, and I don't know that it is, but in the, in the minds of the right, I do think it is not some some cadre organization um, or, you know, uh, vanguardist group that takes it as their kind of moral mission to go fight the right. Uh, I think that attitude is right. But I think actually the broader it is, the more massive it is, the more people who uh, otherwise might not even think of themselves as political can get involved with it, the more likely we are to delegitimize the politics of the right and actually have a chance at defeating it. Robert, thank you so much for being on our show today. And I can't believe that we had back-to-back days where guests actually quoted the work of Amé Chazaire. That was pretty incredible. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it and count on us bothering you in the future to have you back on because your angle on anti-fascism, on the DSA, on fascism, your perspective on it is really fascinating. So we'll probably be annoying you in the very near future to have you back on. Well, thanks very much. I'd love to be back on whenever you'll have me. All right. Take care, Robert. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after this week on Patreon. We are definitely finally sharing our interview from nearly 15 years ago to the day back in January 2006 with Barbara Olshansky, who was assistant legal director for the Center for Constitutional Rights and was heavily involved with the center's lawsuit against President George W. Bush, his uh, head of the National Security Agency, General Michael Hayden as well, and the heads of the other major security agencies. Now, we thought we were going to play this interview last week, but at the very last minute, we found out about the death on on New Year's Day, the passing of the great indigenous activist Carrie Dan, and so we shared that instead. If you want to hear that interview with Carrie, you'll have to tune into last week's Patreon podcast. But the suit that uh, Barbara was involved in, uh, it challenged the legality of the NSA's surveillance of persons within the United States without judicial approval or statutory authorization. We also spoke with her about her work on bringing justice to the detainees in Guantanamo. Why share an interview about civil society's attempt to hold the Bush administration accountable for their crimes of illegal surveillance and detention, not to mention lying us into war and torture? 
It's just a reminder to anyone who may have a positive view of President George W. Bush and his administration because of how awful the outgoing president, his successor, President Trump, was. Anyone who has lightened up a little bit on Trump is forgetting just how awful, or lightening up on W, I should say, is forgetting just how awful George W. Bush was, despite the fact that President Obama refused to bring his administration to justice. It's the kind of conversation that once you remember how evil George W. Bush really was, you don't have such warm and fuzzy feelings about seeing him in the Obamas. The Obamas and the Bushes happily greeting each other with huge smiles at yesterday's inauguration. It makes it kind of sick. Meanwhile, this week we started off by taking Martin Luther King Day off, as we did last year, and instead shared a 12-hour marathon of interviews we have done over the years on black history, feminism, and liberation. Then on Tuesday, we talked about, among other things, minoritarian resistance, which is thick with elitist self-righteousness. Then Wednesday, we were introduced to the concept of the myth of stability and the idea that it is not lawlessness that is our problem, but lawfulness, that the law itself is the crime. And today we talked about the roots of fascism, not only within European law, as yesterday's guest suggested, but also within liberal democracy and capitalism. I- I'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole thing. Tomorrow on Patreon, you can hear me try to do just that, figure out what the hell happened this week, what I learned, and as usual, it made me feel really horrible about myself. But you can only hear our 15-year-old interview with Barbara Olshansky on the now seemingly quaint fight for privacy and my struggle with the events that unfolded this week on the show and off by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to Adrian and Ryan. Special thanks for Michael for showing his generous support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks, Michael. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff admits to digestive relief. Producing this week's, or today's show, is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind our listeners what this week's question from hell is. This week's question from hell is... Hey, uh, so what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? Uh, get your responses in. Get a couple more minutes. Wally R says they've had their hands full sorting out home baking recipes from home bomb making recipes on Reddit since last March. And Tyna Ness jumps in here with watching anime with Baron Trump, which I really like. <laughs> I really like that too. I thought that was. I got a handful more from uh, DM, Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if you want to get those in, uh, any more, get them in now because uh, we got Jeffy up. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail again. Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us. But we got to have them now. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And like you said, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Inauguration Day. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. So, Inauguration Day. Nothing happened. All over the nation, state houses were overrun with no one. No horned, half-naked, acid-freaking flag face paint. No fascists named after flaming desserts. No real estate moguls just arrived in private jets. No former Navy SEALs. No Olympic swimmers. No Confederate Army holdovers kept alive with a pump running their entire blood supply through a desperate wish machine every 20 minutes. 
One lonely figure with a Trump flag sagging appeared on this or that legislative mall, at most a handful of pathetic Metamucil addicts looking for a fix, but otherwise the turnout was imperceptible. The only thing that came close to an invasion was the attendance of failed Liberace clone attempt Ted Cruz at the ceremony in D.C. He wore a mask, so no one could tell it was him, but I could tell, because as the pantomime of power transference fulfilled itself in all its paper phantasm shadow play, he had his fingers crossed behind his back. I'm no lip reader, and Cruz has no lips to speak of, even on the best of days, but I swear I saw him mouthing, they'll arrest Biden now, no, now, no. Now, just practicing. The Glum Fox News Channel had a feed of the event, but if anyone was watching in the control room or the studios, they were rendered speechless, mouths sealed like a condemned mine shaft in silent mopery. No one said, And there you have it. Joe Biden has become the first entirely illegitimate president of the United States. The counterfeit first lady stands at his side. The first illegitimate black woman vice president, who's not really black anyway, seems eager to get her illegitimate fake Negro cooties all over the Senate. Trump had boarded a helicopter an hour before to no fanfare, no 21-gun salute, on some lawn somewhere, raising his tiny fist in a gesture of ignored, rather than accepted, lack of triumph, as he prepared to disembark from his wrecked ship of state into an oblivion of lawsuits. He seems like a very happy old man looking forward to a bright and wonderful future. So nice to see quipped Greta Thunberg, a teenage climate rescue agitator by whom Trump once felt castrated. Gratuitous performances commenced by Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, and dem-curious Republican Garth Brooks, who once confused his fans by wearing a Barry Sanders jersey, which they thought indicated Brooks's support for Bernie. What team they thought Bernie played for was never made clear. Bernie was there and cut a fine figure in his short-waisted downwinter jacket, sleek, not too cumbersome, on the off chance he got waved into a pickup basketball game, and of course his eccentric wool-knitted mittens, behind which there is undoubtedly a wistful story about maple syrup or something. Our master of ceremonies was Amy Klobuchar. There's nothing to say about her, except Ryan Seacrest, she ain't. There's a new president this year. His name is Joe Biden. He definitely went for the neoliberalism ride in his career, with a focus on hurting the poor and put upon, while insisting he was a friend of the poor and put upon, whenever it seemed necessary to shut them up. In many ways, he's a mystery. The progressive narrative is on the ascendant these days. Fascism, financial machinations, and socialism for the wealthy, but ever crueler capitalism for everyone else, have blown their wad. Biden's first actual concern is to be a statesman in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. There are actual benchmarks to meet. He seems primed to make an actual attempt at treating the emergency in ways that will eventually keep the spread to a minimum. However, a big real part of that will be making sure most people have the financial wherewithal to stay home and everyone has the access to health care they need regardless of their income. And he seems a 
tad resistant to the simplest, most direct ways of turning those goals into achievements. It appears that teaching this old neoliberal dog new socialist tricks for getting the people what they need is going to require a few bracing slaps to the jowls. He mentioned inequality as a negative in his speech, so he seems to have been made aware of it by his staff. He's also a big fan of commuting by rail, which is a good sign, though perhaps only good in concept or good as a fondly held romance within his personal heart of hearts, and might not translate to a recognition that the entire developed world, except for the U.S., could live without personal automobiles if necessary. In short, he said all the right things without committing to either right or wrong solutions. As I listened under the assumption that he was doing his best not to say anything in particular a rational person could disagree with, I was gratified. Gratified that he was beating around the bush. Gratified that he was keeping the cards close to his chest. For me. If it was deception, and I'm sure it was, it was meant to deceive me. It was meant to deceive someone who wants universal health care, not a loony celebrity spaceship mogul. It was meant to deceive someone who wants an equitable redistribution of wealth downward to the people, not to deceive some cosplay Rambo who's pissed off because he can't raise the down payment on a second boat. It was meant to elide anything that might trouble someone who wants to demilitarize the police, not someone who masturbates to a poster of Kyle Rittenhouse tacked to their ceiling. The speech was meant to deceive me, not my enemies. There were no hints about hidden adversaries coming from the wild unknown. There were no threats that an alien force from within was coming to take our property and turn our nation into Venezuela or Cuba or some other scary nation. There was no demonizing of the media, nor any overt evidence of tiny penis syndrome. It felt good to be deceived. That's about the most I can expect from a president, that they lie to me, specifically, not to the people Mitch McConnell lies to. Let those people find their own president. And they should really try to find a higher quality liar to devote themselves to. The last two, Bush and this, this latest homunculus, crashed the economy so spectacularly, the world stood in awe. The country was downgraded by Standard and Poor's, and the future appeared as a pitch-black void in every crystal ball. There is something positive in the air. The last administration believed in government only by noise, distraction, diversion, and chaos. This one will be trying to actually do a few things. The people don't have much power, but they do have enough to make the rulers fearful. The last administration approached everything as if heading off the reaction of the people before there even was a reaction. This one promises to try to avoid a reaction as much as possible. It therefore must actually do a few things. And when we protest for Medicare for all, as we will certainly have to, we might be ignored, we might be arrested, we might be herded into camps. But everything that has the stink of this previous administration will have the stink and a stigma on it for this one, too. The previous administration made its unwillingness to be a tool of the people obvious. And anything the new one does needs to evince none of that garbage. Every time it veers the wrong way, We'll need to call it out, like an unruly dog. We all know what we think is wrong with the world, and we all know what absolutely will not work.
The old habits of government are what the last administration relied on to hide behind, but in doing so, it unmasked the strategy of deception. Are there enough people onto it to jump to action when the new government gets up to its old tricks? I'm sure there's a quotation from Inauguration Day that would serve as a capper to this. But to be honest, I really didn't pay attention. All I know is, as a friend says, it feels like we've all taken an enormous, satisfying dump. I know a lot of you thought of the old regime as just an amplified version of business as usual, and maybe it was. Parts of it definitely were. And the ways they were demonstrated to the public to be tactics of obfuscation can now be used to call out the same tactics of this new regime. But we also had an extremely rotten thing in the body politic. And while we're not even close to chipping away at our real problems, it's good to have at least that out of our system. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. All right, Jeffy, we're up against the clock again. I went over again. All right, I just want to say that the that there's one really good version of that Bernie meme with, um, you know, the Pence with the fly in his hair? Yeah. So there's a picture of Pence with the fly in his hair, and then you zoom in, and it's Bernie in a chair. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> on that note, on Jeffy, that note, Jeffy, I can't yeah. wait to get your new microphone because I'm sick of listening to me feedback. I'm so sorry. I even turned on the volume and everything. It's like, it's and it's really going to get bad when the weather gets warm and the fan on the computer starts blowing. <laughs> All right. Till next All right, time. Till next time. Ciao. Hey. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. And God, I hate saying live streaming host. That sounds like I have some sort of issue. Uh, Alex, please remind us what's this week's question from Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what's the CIA been up to the whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? Uh, via email, DM, I like Twitter, your dramatic so. reading, by the way. Of it. Very good. What has the CIA been up to? This Now you put pressure on my... Yeah, sorry. Uh, still buying governments so cheap, changing cabinets without a squeak. FNA, man. That's our old friend, Fart69, who I own email to. Uh, Rock Taster says, a script for a new Marky Mark movie where he plays a capital insurrectionist first responder. <sighs> Gorgeous Greg says, establishing then dominating the legal cannabis market. Fight the CIA. Buy from your local unregulated weed dealer. I agree. Strange One Two says... The getting conservatives to trust the non-existent plan with the Q op, with the Q psyop. Okay. Elijah R says started a punk band. Maybe my favorite response: uh, Black Panthers Panther says relocating parlor surfers. <laughs> Hypocrite reader posted redacted, and Tara D says crystals, hot yoga, and Reiki healing. Re- relocating parlor servers that is really good I also really like Tynan saying watching anime with Baron Trump I thought that was spectacular yeah between those two uh, Aaron saying scoping Pinterest for terrorists and fun bathroom ideas uh, Matt saying sitting tight and eyeing each other with suspicion I like that uh, but I know I agree with you Alex I gotta say it's Tynan saying watching anime with Baron Trump Tynan you are the winner of this week's question from hell you have won your choice of this is hell merchandise you can see all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support congratulations Tynan now all you have to do is contact us and tell us which piece of merchandise you want the most and your mailing address and we'll get it out to you as soon as possible. The answer, my answer to this week's question, Mel, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? 
They've been very busy, very busy laughing at the FBI and how bad they are at fighting domestic terrorism by white people and how the FBI instead focused on black identity extremists. That's the kind of stuff that really cracks up those freaks over the CIA. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell, and special thanks to everyone who joined us on Patreon this week, as well as all of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support to you know show your support for our show, your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Thanks, Adrian and Ryan, for being our newest subscribers. And again, overnight, Michael showed his support, and we truly appreciate it, Michael. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is warm water with salt and sugar, Alka-Seltzer, sleep, another Alka-Seltzer, and a tuna sandwich. And you gotta wonder if we're being played by Alka-Seltzer. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including political theorist William Callison and historian Quinn Slobodian, co-authors of the Boston Review article, Corona politics from the Reichstag to the Capitol. And I gotta tell you, their whole concept of minoritarian resistance you got to read it. It's really fantastic. Thanks to yesterday's guest, legal scholar Rose Parfit, who wrote the article Mob Constitutionalism, The Ride and the Rights, which was posted at the Critical Legal Thinking website, and her idea that the law is actually the crime is something that I'm still wrapping my head around. And finally, thanks to today's guest, member of the Editorial Collective at Viewpoint Magazine and writer Robert Kavoris, who wrote the article, We Need a Popular Anti-Fascist Movement for PartisanMag.com. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our interview with Barbara Olshansky, who is now a staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, on the Center's fight against the George W. Bush administration, their lawsuit against him and the head of the National Security Agency and the heads of the other major security agencies challenging the the NSA's surveillance of persons within the United States without judicial approval. And I'll be trying to get a mental grip, a grasp on exactly what happened in the world and on the show this week. From the revelation of minoritarian resistance to the concept of the stability myth, that the real crime is the law, and despite the end of the Trump administration, the need to fight fascism is more than ever. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon and listening tomorrow, Friday, at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>